Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're just joining us today for the first time, you joined us on a uh, good day. Uh, every first Sunday of, of, of the month, we start, typically we start a new series, and today is, is uh, not, not the exception to that rule. We're actually starting a series called Kindness in Exile. That doesn't mean kindness is going into exile. That means God is kind even when he sends us into exile. Okay, that's what we're talking about. And we're looking at the prophecies from the book of Ezekiel. And of course, if I were to take a sermon series and go through every verse of the book of Ezekiel, we would probably spend a couple years doing that in order to do it real justice. So we're doing kind of an overview or a flyby view of some of the high points of Ezekiel's prophecies in the Old Testament. Ezekiel is a prophet of God in the Old Testament who is a prophet during the exile. And Ezekiel finds his task by God to speak to the exiled uh, believers in God. Those who have come under God's judgment through the Babylonians, having taken over Judah and the region of the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was sacked a couple, about 150, 200 years prior to that by the Assyrians. And so now we, we have a situation in the Old Testament where Israel is no longer a nation. God brought them into the promised land through Moses' leadership and then Joshua leading them across the Jordan River into the promised land. They took the promised land not greatly, might I add, in the way that God had asked them and told them to, but they took it nonetheless and they populated the region, drove out the Canaanites, most of them, uh, and, and they established a nation of 12 tribes. Uh, and those 12 tribes became what we would know as a unified nation of Israel up until you get to uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam and Jeroboam um, become different kings because the northern kingdom of tribes, the 10 tribes of the northern area decided, hey, we don't want to follow you guys anymore because your dad was really bad. And Rehoboam said, yeah, and I'm going to make it worse on you than my dad did. And so they broke off. And you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Well, now they have no kingdom because they've, they had spent hundreds of years by this point with various different kings uh, leading the way and various different spiritual leaders leading them down a path of destruction. What, what path of destruction might that be? Uh, as with any nation, if, if a nation becomes weak within by compromising its values, it, its solid structures that make it strong in the first place, specifically if it's a nation founded on the principles of God through the Old and New Testament who have covenanted with God, then when that nation begins to do things that are contrary to God's commands and teachings, when they begin to, as some of the prophets of the Old Testament say, prostitute themselves. This is not just a sexual term in the Old Testament. It is they have become unfaithful to God, Yahweh of the Old Testament and the New Testament by giving themselves over to the worship of other so-called gods. And these so-called gods of the Canaanite religions required human sacrifice. They required cultic practices of sexual prostitution. Uh, I was reading, actually, in some of my studies for both of the series, uh, well, actually, three of the series that I've done so far this year on the prophets, <clears throat> in the in the culture, in the Babylonian culture and the Assyrian culture, it was actually expected that if a woman, married or not, would at least go serve once in their lifetime as a prostitute in one of the temple cults. It's crazy, right? 
Uh, many people had given them, themselves over to the worship of this god called Molech, who was a god who had the head of a bull, looked like a centaur, the head of a bull, the body of a man, and had his arms outstretched while he sat on the throne, and there would be a fire that burned between his legs. The, the babies would be laid on the arms or between the arms and to be sacrificed as infants. I mean, it's some really barbaric and horrific things that were going on. So God says to the nation of Israel, I asked you over and over again, don't give in to the worship of these other nations around you. When I bring you into the promised land, you remain faithful to me. You be the light to the nations. You, you be the ones through whom all nations will be blessed by not compromising your values, your teachings that I'm giving you. You remain faithful to me, and it will go well with you in the land. And of course, the story is they weren't. And so by this time, Ezekiel is actually a priest and a prophet of God. Did you know he was raised, he, he was raised in the priesthood? He was a part of the uh, Levitical priesthood at the time. So not only is he a prophet of God, he is also a priest. But guess what? He's in exile, so he can't perform his priestly duties. And so God gave him a different job to do. And so when we pick up the message today, where we're going to be looking in Ezekiel chapter 11... Uh, we find him in exile actually having been caught up in a vision by God. While in exile in the Babylonian territory, God takes him in the spirit, in this vision, back to Jerusalem. Though the region of Judah, the nation of Judah has been wiped out, there's one stronghold that the Babylonians had not wiped out yet, and that's Jerusalem. The city walls are intact, the temple is still there, and so God takes him back to see this. And there's a buzz going on in the city. And this is what is going on. If you, I'm going to read the first part of the, the chapter, and then uh, our verse will pop up on the screen when we get to verse 14. The New Living Translation in Ezekiel 11, starting with verse 1, reads like this. Then the Spirit lifted me and brought me to the east gateway of the Lord's temple. Again, he's in exile in Babylon who knows how far away, and he's taken in the spirit to the temple gates. He's there in the spirit witnessing what's going on. He says, there I saw 25 prominent men of the city. These would be like the government leaders, spiritual leaders that are still intact within the city walls of Jerusalem. Among them were Jazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Beniah, who were leaders among the people. The Spirit said to me, and this is capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit said to me, Son of man, these are the men who were planning evil and giving wicked counsel in this city. So what they hadn't learned up to this point is those who still remained within the fortified city walls of Jerusalem were still doing evil. It, it like wasn't enough. It's like you spank your kid for doing the wrong thing, not the wrong thing, for being defiant. And they're like, they go back and do it again. Like you don't learn a lesson. Have you not learned up to this point yet? And so this is what God is showing him. He's showing him these leaders, these men of the city who hadn't learned to do the right things. And so they're doing evil and giving wicked counsel in the city. Verse 3, they say to the people, it is not a good time to build houses. Yeah, definitely not there. God told Jeremiah, if you remember last month, to the exiles, I'm going to send you off into the land, and where you go in the, in the empire of Babylon, settle in those cities, build houses there, have children, get, get married, have children, the right order, get married, have children, and let your grandchildren have children. You're going to be there a while. Establish yourselves and don't die in the land of exile because you're going to come home eventually. But they're saying it's not a good time to build houses. Yeah, not in Jerusalem. <laughs> it's not a good time nor a good place. And they go on to say this city is like an iron pot 
We are safe inside it like meat in a pot. They got that right? We're just getting ready to be cooked. The forces outside of these walls are stronger than we are. We're just biding our time. And my phone just clicked off. There it is. We are like meat in a pot, verse four. Therefore, son of man, prophesy against them loudly and clearly. I get accused of being too loud sometimes. Uh, So I take great pride in the fact that God calls some leaders to be be loud. So there you have it. Uh, Then then the spirit of the Lord came upon me. Uh, Hello? Was that on purpose? Stephen? Look into my eyes. Just kidding. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and he told me to say, these are the words he told him to say loudly and clearly, this is what the Lord says to the people of Israel. I know what you are saying, for I know every thought that comes into your minds. That's a scary thought, right? You have murdered many in this city and filled its streets with the dead. You know what he's referring to? Many of you leaders here have perpetuated the worship of false gods and have have promoted sacrifice of children and, and other people. Yeah, you should be scared. You're in an iron pot and you're meat to be cooked, but you have set the stage for that. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, verse 7. This city is an iron pot, all right, but the pieces of meat are the victims of your injustice. As for you, I will soon drag you from this pot. I will bring you on, excuse me, I will bring on you the sword of war so greatly that you so greatly fear, says the sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of Jerusalem and hand you over to the foreigners who will carry out my judgments against you. You will be slaughtered all the way to the borders of Israel, at least what Israel once was. I will execute judgment on you, and you will know that I am the Lord. That doesn't sound like a nice God. That's mean. Actually, is God right to pour out judgment? There's a verse in the New Testament. When I, get, when I start to find myself getting sucked into this mantra that the God of the Old Testament is mean and the God of the New Testament is loving and grace-filled, I remember something in Romans that Paul says that reminds me that all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. So that means we all stand in fear of judgment. Has anyone been good? Has anyone been perfect? Well, I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Okay, you can compare yourself to humans, but when we compare ourselves to a perfect God, are we perfect? Do we, yeah, so we all stand in judgment. He goes on to say, verse 11, no, this city will not be an iron pot for you and you will not be like the meat safe inside. I will judge you even to the borders of Israel and you will know that I am the Lord for you have refused to obey my decrees and regulations. Instead, you have copied the standards of the nations around you. While I was still prophesying, Ezekiel says, Petaliah, the son of Beniah, suddenly died. Can you imagine that? And then I fell face down on the ground and I cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord, are you going to kill everyone in Israel? And here's where we pick up our passage for discussion this morning. Then the message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, the people still left in Jerusalem are talking about you and your relatives and all the people of Israel who were in exile. They are saying, those people are far away from the Lord So now he has given their land to us. Do you catch what's going on? We must be the favored ones because we haven't gotten the punishment. Everybody else outside the walls have been carried off into exile or at least they've been killed in battle. But we are the righteous ones or God would have torn us down. So now he's given us the exile's land. And so we will now take it over. It's ours. We can, we can do with it what we want. Do you catch the selfish nature of this? 
Be careful that you put yourself on too high a pedestal because God hasn't called the proud. He's called the humble. Verse 16, therefore, tell the exiles, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during the time of exile. So now he's telling Ezekiel to not speak to the people in the city of Jerusalem, but to all the exiles. He says, I will be your sanctuary. You know the temple that's still intact back in Jerusalem that the people there think I'm blessing them with? They forget that's just a building. I will be your sanctuary, God says. Tell the exiles that. I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. Don't worry about those who have taken your ancestral lands and your homes. What I'm going to give you back is going to be better than what you left. I promise it's going to be good. When the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols. He says, when you come back home, it's, it's, it's going to have all of these statues and, and altars to other gods that you're going to have to tear down. You've you got to get rid of that stuff. And I will give them the singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them, God says. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart, and I will give them a tender, responsive heart. It says in some versions of Scripture, I'll take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. A heart of stone doesn't feel much, but a heart of flesh feels every pinprick. So they will obey my decrees and my regulations, God says. They will truly be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those who long for vile images and detestable idols, I will repay them, their, uh, them fully for their sins. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Both groups were under the same judgment. And whereas one group was sent into exile and the other group left behind inside the fortified city walls of Jerusalem, one thought that they were being blessed by God and the other cursed. And God wanted to tell them, no, 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 it's just the opposite. Those of you who are spared and in the cities of exile, I've blessed. Even though you may not feel it, I've given you, I've given you something, I've given you a second chance. I've given you a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. I've given you something beyond yourselves and I will care for you and your children and your children's children until it's time to bring you back home. The key point is this. It, it takes God to transform a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I often have people, because I'm the pastor, I've got all the magical sayings, Right? I've got all the magical words to and all the incantations to bring somebody into the presence of God. And so I'm often asked as a pastor, I want you to meet so-and-so who's my next-door neighbor or my family member. Maybe you can talk to them. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, yes, I, I love people. I'll talk to them. But the reality is, if God has placed you in their direct path, you are his mouthpiece to them. And so the reality is God can take what is hardened and use you to help soften it or to break that stony heart. It doesn't take the religious prefects of all of these clergy and highfalutin people. I, I, I thought it was funny back in Mother's Day. Did you catch the article in the paper? I was one of the, the pastors they interviewed, and, and they said, men and women of the cloth. I hate that. If you're watching from the newspaper, I'm sorry. It's just like, I'm, what cloth? The loincloth? What are we talking about? And I know what it means, but the reality is there is no pastor that stands on the stage and preaches to anyone that is any better than anybody else that sits and listens. We all have a different journey, all different responsibilities, but we are all walking together in the same direction. Okay? 
So what do we learn from this passage about God? See, the idea of what Ezekiel, God is trying to help Ezekiel understand is there needs to be a transformation. There needs to be a transformation of stubbornness, of, of, of this hardened heart, of this prideful uh, existence into this place of humility, repentance, and turning to God. It's not God on his throne with a royal scepter smacking us into submission, but the reality is when God brings his judgment, it's because his patience has worn thin. And do you know how long it took his patience to wear thin with the people of Israel and Judah? Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. You go back to the book of Judges, the, the Israelites have just come into the land after, after the book of Judges, or after the book of Joshua. Joshua, and they've now established all of the tribal lands and all of that that comprise the nation of Israel. And if you read the first and second chapter of Judges, it sets the stage for the next few hundred years. It says in there, there would be a judge that would come, the people would do right in the sight of the Lord, and then there would be a gap, and then the people would forget God and go through a cycle of degradation and, and just evil and doing horrible things. That's the whole book of Judges. But it's not just a spiral like this. It is a spiral downward all the way to the end of the book. And then you get the nation crying out for a king, like all the other nations around them. When we get to the books of Samuel, and Samuel's like, you don't need a king, you already have one. But God says, go ahead and give them what they want, but let them understand that the kings that they will have will drive them into slavery and submission. I'm not that kind of king, but if that's what they want, if they want to be like the other nations, let them know this is what's going to happen. And so God has warned them all along the way. We get now to the time of Ezekiel, and God's patience had worn thin. Their hearts had become so hardened by the worship of these other so-called gods that not only had they forgotten God, he was just a myth to them, if that. <clears throat> or he was one among many. I want you to look at what was going on in the debates between the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem. There's this idea of punishment versus reward. Biblical scholar Bruce Vaultner explains that in both cases, those who remain in Jerusalem smugly contrast themselves with those who were in exile. The people who remained in Jerusalem look upon themselves as the surviving Israel <clears throat> and upon the exiles as lost forever to any title within the land. As before, God must shatter this illusion and proclaim <clears throat> that the old Israel is dead. There is no longer a nation. <clears throat> there is no longer even a divided nation of a northern and southern kingdom. It's over. How many people have you seen continue to fight for something when it's over? Think of the end of a game. Do you know what I'm talking about? When God has said, okay, enough. Or when the game, the final the buzzer has sounded. No, 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 I want a do-over. Wait a minute, no, that wasn't right. And you see the fighting and the fighting and the fighting. <clears throat> There's no need for an instant replay in God's economy. He sees perfectly, knows perfectly, and acts perfectly. And so the punishment is upon all, no matter what the people in the city think versus the people in exile think. A new Israel, Vautner says, will arise only through new creation. One is to look for the new Israel, not in reprobate Jerusalem, but in the lands of exile. Some of you may feel like you're in a land of exile. Some of you may be going through circumstances and situations where you're like, seriously, God, again? You know, I, I, what, have I done to, what have I done to warrant this? 
why is so much hitting at one time? Why are these things happening? And it may not be God's judgment on you at all. It may just be that things are happening that don't align with what you expect to happen as it does with all of us at times. And we call out to God, but instead of, instead of calling out to him in a way that says, help me in my time of frustration and exile, we blame him for it. God, why are you making this happen? Or, or why aren't you stopping it? Why aren't you stopping this thing? Or why aren't you intervening? Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you fixing that? And there's a still small voice of the Holy Spirit that says, I am if you just listen and look. But you're listening and looking to the wrong people, the wrong things, and in the wrong places. Thanks. I was getting all choked up. There was a frog in there. Thanks. Um, but there is, there is a God who loves us, who brings us into the place of exile, but there's a God who loves us that hasn't exiled us, but it feels like we're exiled. You could be in punishment. You may not be in punishment. The question is, if you have rejected God, continued your own course of actions, and they do not align with God's decrees and commands, and you're expecting blessings from God, there's a contradiction there, isn't there? If you're living a life of sin, expecting God to bless you, you may get blessed at times, or it could just be a coincidence, but the reality is he may have said, you know what, if this is what you want, if you want to continue to live a life that is not sold out to me, but more sold out to you and your desires, then you can have what you want, but it's not going to benefit you, and it's not going to play out the way you hope or expect it will. And when that happens, don't blame me for it. Because I'm here with an outstretched arm. I want you to receive what I have to offer you, but if you keep rejecting it or smacking away my hand of salvation from your current situation, that's on you, not on me. And it's not that God doesn't love us. He loves us enough to keep that outstretched arm. He says, I still want you, and I'll still receive you, but you've got to quit smacking what I have to offer you away. See, that's something our church... Our churches and our culture don't understand right now. I believe at a great level as we've been given so much. We have been blessed in so many different ways. And then when we start to feel the effects of the crunch, because we aren't as a, as a nation living by the principles that we have been founded on, which are Judeo-Christian principles, we start to point fingers. This is what happens, right? It's your fault, it's, it's, his, it's this president's fault. No, it's that president, it's his administration. And we, we may have valid judgment calls on that. But I remember Jesus said something in the Sermon on the Mount. If you wanna go talk to somebody about the speck in their eye, you see a fault in them, I hear that phone, praise the Lord. If you, want, if you want to see, sorry, I'm so easily distracted. If you want to go tell somebody about the speck in their eye, hey, you got this problem, I'm gonna, you need to deal with it. First, get that huge log out of your own eye, right? Have I lost you? Okay, I just wanna make sure you're still with me. Punishment versus reward, the reality is there are some people that feel they're being punished when they just may be going through a dark valley and the God of gods is there with them walking through that dark valley together with them. But there are some that are truly being punished because they're not living. And it's not a punishment like zap, zap. I hear this. I heard this growing up from my stepdad all the time. God's going to strike me down, right? Because he didn't believe in God. Well, I step into the church, the building's going to fall in on me. I mean, it's superstitious nonsense, which he didn't believe in anyway. But God is not up there with some kind of zap laser gun willing to strike you down whenever you slip up. That's not the God of the Bible that I read. He is a God of grace, a God of mercy, and a God whose patience far exceeds anything that I could ever conjure up in my own life. But there is a limit to that. But there's not a limit to his love. 
because he loves and gives kindness in exile. He blessed these people in exile. They grew, they prospered. Many of them grew wealthy in exile because they prayed for the prosperity of the towns and the cities in which they were placed and God made them fruitful. They multiplied, their families grew so that when they went back home, they wouldn't go back as paupers the way they left. He was creating something new in them in exile, in the wilderness experience. He was giving them something beyond themselves, but they had to come to the end of themselves to see it. And that's where we are today. We are so full of ourselves, we haven't gotten to the end of ourselves enough to see it. And I believe God is bringing us as a nation, as a nation of churches, to the end of ourselves in order to truly see where we've come, what he's done for us, and how we've neglected him along the way. There are too many pep talks going on across the nation, motivational speeches when there should be the word of God, which is a double-edged sword that cuts in a good way and it also hurts. And it needs to be a rightly divided word. I know the message of the word comes across harshly, and you may say, Brandon, you make it harsh. I'm not trying to, but I see more and more as the day approaches the need of urgency. Because there are people dying and going to hell. There are people who are laying children upon the altar of convenience. There are sex cults in our culture. And we are being forced to bow down and to worship or there will be consequences. We are not homophobic, transphobic, just because we disagree as a church. We are loving enough to see the right and the wrong of a situation. Granted, there are churches out there that do a monstrous job of sharing the love of God. It's more like hate. And when I preach from this stage about these issues, it's truly from a heart of love because I see the seriousness of the situation. And out of love, we need to be extending a hand, not rejecting, not stiff-arming, not calling names, but realizing we are in the same boat, many of us suffering at the hands of our own decisions, even within the body of Christ. We oftentimes act in the church like we are in this iron pot and that these other people have been exiled, but God is blessing us. When the reality is, (laughs) there are many of us, many of our churches that stand in the square judgment of God because we have neglected our duties to be faithful, to be loving, and to always hold the truth in a high regard. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. I lingered way too long on that point. Let me move to the next one. I think this is really cool. God is a sanctuary to his people. God is a sanctuary to his people. Biblical scholar John Goldingay writes, the exiles may have thought about building a sanctuary in Babylon. There's some speculation that they might have even tried to build a sanctuary in some of these regions where they were exiled so they could reinstitute a sacrificial system. But there's no hardened evidence for that. But they may have felt neglected by God because the center of their worship was back in Jerusalem at the temple. The place where God would come and dwell in this place in the inner sanctuary of the temple called the Holy of Holies where God's spirit, God's presence would come and rest on the Ark of the Covenant between the angels on that, on that box. They are now far removed from that, but see what God has told Ezekiel to tell them is listen, 
I cannot be confined to a small little temple area. And actually, if we read the Old Testament, God was never confined to a box. (laughs) And see, there were many who were wise in Israel that knew that. They knew that God doesn't dwell in buildings made by the hands of men. The exiles, let me read this again. The exiles may have thought about building a sanctuary in Babylon. They may have actually done so, but God speaks not of a dwelling in a sanctuary, but of being a sanctuary. He is present there even though there is no building. (laughs) I'm guilty of this. How many of you say, how many of you said this morning, I'm going to church today? You can say, I'm going to be the church. The church is not a place. It's not an edifice. It's not beams that hold up a roof. It's not brick that surround us to keep us cool or hot or warm or cold or any of those things. It's not the seat you sit in. It's not a building. The church is a living organism. And if you read the New Testament, the church is the people of God. The church are those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, those who have surrendered their life to him and said, you are my Lord, my master, my savior. I will follow you for the rest of my, and not just one time. It's not like a salvation. I'm stepping into your salvation and now I'm safe. Yeah, you are, but it's not a one step. It's multiple steps in the direction of God. See, following signifies you're moving in a direction. It doesn't mean you have just stepped into something because a lot of us step into a lot of things and they're not always good. But it does require a first step. And that first step is faith and belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But then it's a perpetual movement. See, this is why our mission statement says we are to know Christ intimately. That's the first step. I step into the presence of God through belief and faith in Jesus Christ who has given his life for me and given me salvation, now by the grace of God, I can enter God's throne room with boldness and confidence because of what Christ has done for me. That is the step of knowing Christ intimately. But knowing Christ intimately is a lifelong pursuit, which requires that we continue to grow in him continually. It means I'm going to continue to study his word. I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to continue to seek him in every facet of my life, not just on Sunday mornings. And not just in a small group somewhere. I'm going to take charge of my own salvation. That sounds blasphemous, but we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. (laughs) It is God through Christ who brings salvation to us. We cannot save ourselves, but it is my duty as a believer in Christ to continue to live out that salvation And then, as a part of that movement forward in God, I am called to go. I'm not called to hide it, to hold it, to keep it. I've sung this before. I'm not going to bore you with my singing, but what is this? (laughs) You got it. Some of you grew up in in a church where you you did the little light thing. What are you not going to hide it under? A bushel of what? Just kidding, it doesn't say. But you're not going to hide it under there, whatever that bushel is. It's just a bushel basket. What are you going to do? Because we are to go. See, the light of the world came into the world. And when he came, he imparted that light to those who would believe in him and follow him. And now we are light bearers to the world. Not because it's a light generated in and of ourselves, but because he's imparted his light to us. Acts chapter 4, verses 46 through 50. Do you know that Stephen was the first martyr of the church? Stephen was one of the elders uh, of the church. You go to Acts chapter 5 and 6, you'll see that the church had grown at such uh, such leaps and bounds. It, was, it had become a megachurch at that time. 
if you want to call it that in the early church system, uh, that the 12 apostles, excuse me, the 11 apostles, well, they got Matthias, so the 12, they replaced Judas by this time. So the 12 apostles were unable to meet everybody's needs. Well, the senior pastor never came and did X, Y, or Z for me. Right, so that, that, was start, that argument's been going on since the beginning of the church, all right? And so the early apostles said, holy crap. No, they didn't say that. They said, because <clears throat> they were holier than me, uh, they said, goodness gracious. <laughs> they probably didn't say that either. But they said, oh my, we've got to do something about this problem because we can't go around meeting all of the needs that need to be met in every situation and circumstance. And so we now have to diversify. And my guess is they took a note from the book uh, the book in, in, in the Torah where Jethro comes to Moses and says, Moses, you can't do all this by yourself. You need to actually uh, get some men who are able to do some of the duties of your responsibilities so that you're not burning out. Because from sunup to sundown, Moses was working to try to cast judgment, not like we're talking about judgment, but to judge on issues that were going on in the community of faith. So this is what was happening in the early church, is the apostles now are being pulled in a million different directions. There are a lot of complaints coming back to the leaders of the church, and now the apostles say, we need to diversify and get some more leaders in place. And so Stephen becomes one of those leaders. And Stephen is being confronted by a group of people, many of them religious leaders, about this, this movement of Christ that's happening within Judaism at the time. And Stephen preaches this message to God in a way that just really conceptualizes the real situation. He starts all the way back in Judaism in the history of Judaism, and continues to build all the way through to the time of Christ. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 7. Now, you read the whole thing for yourself at some other time, but read this. He says, David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Can you build me a temple that is as good as that, God asks? Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth and you think you're going to build me a house? <laughs> I think of the irony of that. Think of the absurdity of us thinking we can build something to glorify God. Yes, we should work to glorify God with everything we do, even the things we use our hands for. But when we start to get God to come down to our level and put him in places to confine him, that doesn't work. Even the confines of our own intellect he is so beyond those things. He is our sanctuary. And lastly, God changes, again, stubborn hearts into tender, responsive hearts. It's been said uh, that a young woman approached a devoted Christian woman and, 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 and said these words to her. I would give the world to have your experience. Have you met those people in life that are just you step into their presence, they are like holy individuals. I mean, they are amazing. They are truly what you would consider a saint to be. You ever experienced that? You ever, do you know somebody like that? Where you're like, I want to sit and learn at your feet. <laughs> I want to know more about what you know. I want to have what you have. This lady was doing that with this other older lady. She says, I, I would give the world to have your experience. And this, listen to the woman's response. My dear, she said, that's exactly what it cost me. I gave the world for it. First John chapter 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. Okay. We can gloss over that, but what, what, is it, what are the things of the world? So when the world is used, the term world is used in, in the letters of the New Testament, 
It is this, this space and place absent of God. Okay, that, that is the ideology. It, it, that when, we're, when we're talking about the world, you can actually translate it into the Old Testament uh, perspective of don't be like the other nations around you when, he's, when God's talking to Israel. Don't, don't adopt the practices of the Canaanite religions and the pagan religions. You remain faithful to me. This is the concept of the world even in our day and age. Do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. See, I've mentioned this before. When you become a believer in Christ, you do exchange a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. But also the world turns upside down. Or shall I say, your world turns right side up. And so that the world you now see through the eyes of Christ looks upside down. You can't live in an upside, upside down world. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to live in a right-side-up world, but our right-side-up world looks upside down to the rest of the world and vice versa. Does this make sense? Okay. And then when it gets more intense, the upside-down world hates the right-side-up world of God. And so there's a lot of pressure on those who live in the right-side-up world of God to conform to the patterns of this world. But when we exchange the stony heart of stubbornness and pride for the heart of flesh that God gives us, he softens us to the realities of the desperate world in which we live, at least temporarily. And he helps us to see, not with eyes of anger and hatred, but with eyes of love, the seriousness of the situation and the world in which we live that is broken and fallen and hurting and truly in need of a Savior. We are not that Savior, but we have that Savior. And it's that Savior which we are to bring to the world. But we can't have it both ways. And I see a lot of times people with one foot in the world and one foot in, in Christ. And I'm telling you, you, it's not the way it works. It's, one or, it's all or nothing. <laughs> you can't have it both ways. You can't have it your way right away. <laughs> That's not how this works. The world will tell you you can. You can have a little of Jesus, a little of Buddha, a little of Hinduism, a little of Muslim. I mean, you can, all roads lead to God, right? Well, that's the world. The world would tell you that. And the reason the world would tell you that, because it's not, it doesn't have your best interests at heart. But God says, no, 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 there is only one way. And in order to know that way, you have to exchange your desires for mine. And that's hard. How many of you have desires and dreams and hopes for a future? Right? I do. Sarah Lee and I, uh, we haven't done it as much lately because I guess we're getting older, I don't know. But we used to sit and dream about where we would be, what we would do, and we still need to get back to doing that again. But we would sit and, well, what about this? And we could do that. And what does this look like? And how do we do this? And, And we would get a charge from each other as we were dreaming about the future. But the reality was, God is the one who holds our future. And, and, and if we sat down and, and were to have a conversation with you guys on stage today, we would say, you know, a lot of things haven't worked out the way we planned. Our dreams for our future haven't always looked the way that we thought they were going to look, but God has given us something beyond what we could ever have dreamed or imagined. It's not been easy. It's been frustrating at times. There have been times we felt like God has left the building and we've been left holding the bag. But hindsight being 2020, we've seen the hand of God all along the way. And we've trusted where he's led, even though it hasn't been always in the places we've ever wanted to go. But that's what it means to exchange a stony heart for the heart of God. 
to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, as Paul says, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be changed, to become new creations, like Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians. So where do we go? It's important to remember that the warning of God to the church today in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament as he reflects on the judgment of God's people in the Old Testament. Listen to this. Hebrews 3, starting with verse 5. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. That is why the Spirit of God says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As Israel did when they rebelled, when tested, when they tested me in the wilderness. This is before they even went into the promised land. He says, there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. This is not a heart of God who's like, they refuse to do what I tell them. I think it's a heart of sadness. I hear a heart of longing in that passage, as a parent longs for their child to not repeat maybe the mistakes they've made, even though God never made mistakes, but trying to conceptualize it in my own human finite mind, I think, I put rules, my wife and I do, in place so that our kids don't push beyond the boundaries and get hurt. And I hear the heart of God here, it says, I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn why do, why do they always turn away from me? They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. He's talking about those in the Old Testament. Let that not be your story. As our worship team comes forward, let me read this passage to you. And the verses immediately following our passage of Scripture today in Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel writes, starting in verse 22, Then the cherubim lifted their wings and rose into the air with their wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. And then, listen to this, And then the glory of the Lord went up from the city. This is Jerusalem. Remember, he's caught up in the Spirit. He's seeing Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord went up from the city and stopped above the mountain to the east, the Mount of Olives. It stopped there. Almost as if to say, are they going are, are to repent? Afterward, the Spirit of God carried me back again to Babylonia, to the people in exile there, and so ended the vision of my visit to Jerusalem. And I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. Where did the glory of the Lord stop as it left the temple in Jerusalem? Where did I say? Where did Ezekiel say? The Mount of Olives. Why is that significant? The Mount of Olives. Biblical scholar Albert Barnes notes, the rabbis commenting on this passage said, the Shekinah glory of God retired to this mount and there for three years called in vain to the people with the human voice that they should repent. On that mountain, on that mountain, Christ stood when he wept over the city of Jerusalem on his triumphal entry into the city that would utterly be destroyed in 70 AD. From that mountain, Jesus descended amid loud hosannas to enter the city and the temple as a judge, but to also give his life as a ransom for many. And in rejection of Christ, through arrest, beating, crucifixion, and the glory, the glory of the Lord would be led out to Calvary to bear the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders.
In 2010, Sandra Bullock won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her portrayal of Leanne Tuohy's movie, The Blind Side. How many of you have seen that? Okay. The film chronicles a Christian family who took a a homeless young man into their home and gave him the chance to reach his God-given potential. Michael Orr not only dodged the hopelessness of his dysfunctional inner-city upbringing, but became the first-round NFL draft pick for the Baltimore Ravens in 2009. At a fundraiser, Sean Tui noted that the transformation of his family and Michael all started with two words. When they spotted Michael walking along the road on a cold November morning, actually the movie depicts it was nighttime, in shorts and a t-shirt, Leanne Tui uttered two words that changed their world forever. She told Sean, who was driving the car, turn around. So they turned the car around and Michael and put Michael in their warm vehicle, which would have to be a big risk for him to get into a strange person's car. And they ultimately ended up adopting him into their family. Those same two words can change anyone's life. When we turn around, we change directions, and we begin an exciting new journey. Some may need to make an about face concerning their disbelief in Christ, or it could be a Christian who needs to turn around and reconsider the value of fervent fervent prayer. Whatever your situation is, a great story of wonderful change could be just two words away. The glory of the Lord that waited at Mount, Mount, the Mount of Olives, I'm sure, was hoping turn, to hear those words. We're turning around. It's time to turn around. As a church, as a people, as a community, as a nation, it's time to turn around. It's time to let go of the past, to let go, uh, to let go of your future. That sounds wrong, but I'm telling you, let go of your past, let go of your future, and embrace the reality of Christ in the present moment. It's time to face the reality of our situation, realize that only Christ can transform it, and through the power of his Holy Spirit, we can become what we have never been able to become in and of our own strength. If you become hardened, if you become immovable today, if your heart and your feet are like stone, why don't you allow God to transform your heart of stone into a heart of flesh? I believe that God doesn't give up. I I, I do believe he doesn't give up. I believe he brings judgment. But I believe his judgment is the way also he's not giving up because he needs to force us into a situation where we can cry out to him. I don't know what you feel or think about that. That may feel bad to you, but when you consider that God is truly a God of love, even his judgment is an act of love. Where's your sanctuary? Who is your sanctuary? I realize we're past time. But I truly believe that God is not bound by time. And if this message or if God's Spirit has spoken to you in any way, form, or fashion today, to say, I see where you are. And I love you in spite of where you are. I want you to come to me, though. You have to turn around. You have to come here. I've come. I've stepped out of eternity and into time. I've died for you. I've I've made a million steps in your direction. Make one toward me. And maybe you have made that one, and you are in the safe zone, but, man, you're not thriving. And you feel like you're in exile, being beat down, but God says, no, 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 don't you stop. Put down roots, build, 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 build houses. I will be your sanctuary there. I will come to you yet again. The altars are always open. You come to my right, your laughter. 
my left, your right. If you come to my right, somebody will pray with you. Your coming over this way means to our prayer team and those that are willing to pray with others that you need help and you need somebody to walk with you, maybe just to reason with you or just to pray with you. If you just want to pray alone, you come to my left. Nobody's going to come and bother you. But don't leave without making some movement toward the direction of Christ today. Father, we love you. Thank you for your commitment to us when our commitment wanes. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Call us in your direction and help us to make the steps necessary to turn around and to continue to move in the direction that you call. Help us to learn what your still small voice sounds like so that we don't miss you along the way. And God, give us hope and peace in the journey. Forgive us where we stumble and fall, turn around and walk in a different direction. Give us the courage to do what needs to be done even when the rest of the world is moving in opposite direction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.